0: Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, lecturer, writer and editor Rick Marshall talks about how explosives are made and what to do if they're detonated. Well, thank you for your re-invitation. It's nice to be back in Bath. I've got one or two friends here, so it's always nice to come. I didn't notice outside that one or two of the posters said nuclear energy, the technology of destruction, rather than nuclear explosives. But actually, that's quite a nice happenstance because as we're going to see, as well, I want to demonstrate to you, there's a very intimate connection between the two. And well, I want to lay before you the only bit of brain ache you're going to get is a small calculation involving percentages. And for those of you that even then wouldn't like to do a little calculation with percentages. I've got a Blue Peter-type demonstration to get round that. So when we get to that point, we can perhaps go into two ways and meet again, depending on which route you'd like to take. But of all the things I want to do tonight, perhaps that's going to be the most important thing I'd like you to take away with you. In about seven weeks' time, 3rd to the 28th of May, is going to be the 2010 Nuclear Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty Review Conference in New York. But this came into force in 1970. And the then five nuclear weapons states, the USA, Soviet Union, the UK, France, and the People's Republic of China, agreed that they would supply civil nuclear technology to any other country that wanted it in return for the agreement that these countries that wanted civilian nuclear power would forego the possibility of developing nuclear weapons. These five weapon states also committed themselves to disarming their own nuclear weapons. These conferences take place every five years. Now, during the intervening 40 years since the treaty was set up, this has not prevented India, Pakistan and the People's Republic of North Korea from becoming nuclear weapons states. But none of those countries signed the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Korea originally signed the treaty, but pulled out, and then showed the world that they had actually developed an explosive. That was in 2004. So now we have eight nations who admit to having nuclear weapons, and one that we know that has them but hasn't publicly admitted it yet, and that's Israel. So there are now nine states, almost twice the number from when the treaty started. At the 2000, the turn of the millennium review conference, the nuclear weapons states signed, I quote, an unequivocal unequivocal undertaking to eliminate their nuclear arsenals. That was just restating what they signed up to in the beginning, but they restated it. Five years later, at the 2005 conference, nobody could agree on anything, and the conference was a complete failure. So we're now heading towards the next review conference uh, more in hope than perhaps expectation. Now, during the Cold War, the balance of terror, the balance of power between the USA and the former Soviet Union, made World War III by accident the probably most likely scenario. And one could tell you some hair raising stories about incidents which have occurred, computer failures and so on, when the the aeroplanes taking the nuclear weapons to um, Russia were launched and then called back just in time. There were several occasions when things like that happened. So, balance of terror, nobody wanted to start a war, but accident was a possibility. The most likely scenario for the deliberate use of nuclear weapons then as now is the following and if anything the threat is probably greater today and that's the so-called horizontal spread of nuclear weapons to more and more countries and to sub-national groups possibly terrorist groups so rather than worrying about a few countries building more and more weapons vertical proliferation it was the spread to other countries which now i think is probably posing as the greatest threat why is the threat growing Well, originally, the barriers to producing weapons were the difficulty of getting hold of the fissile material, the actual nuclear explosive material that you'd need for your bomb. Then when that became more readily available, because civilian nuclear power stations were spreading around the world, the main barrier was enough people with the right expertise. But as more and more people were trained in nuclear technology, that ceased to be a real constraint. For many countries, they would have found it financially crippling to do so to set up a nuclear power programme, so that was a constraint for a while, but even today that doesn't seem to be a very effective barrier. So now all we have left is really political pressure on countries not to stray into this area, and we see this in particular now with the pressure being put on Iran. I haven't put it on the slide, but I suppose the next one's going to be, what's the the next uh, deterrent? Well, that's going to be preemptive nuclear strikes by, or preemptive military strikes by countries with weapons to prevent those without them getting them. And that's a scenario that has already happened once when uh, some nuclear reactors were in, I think it was Iraq, were bombed before they could go critical so that they couldn't get hold of the fissile uh, material. So, what I hope to do tonight is, first of all, let's all see if we can get our heads around how to achieve a nuclear explosion. It isn't very difficult, and then let's have a look at some of the effects of a nuclear explosion. I won't be discussing what are called RDD weapons, that's radiological dispersion weapons. That's a case of taking some radioactive material with a conventional explosive, detonating it and contaminating a large area with nuclear uh, materials that would be a weapon of mass disruption rather than mass destruction it would certainly be a tremendous dislocation of the country if that would say let off in the middle of um, London or some economic capital like that like in World War II the largest single explosive had a yield of the equivalent of 10 tonnes of TNT The biggest single aerial bomb, equivalent to 10 tons of TNT. Hiroshima was 1,200 times more, the bomb at Hiroshima was 1,200 times more explosive than that, and Nagasaki, it was 2,000 times more powerful than that. In fact, if you look at the most uh, state of the art nuclear weapons, not the ones we're going to discuss tonight, but the ones that the military are very keen on, we have single warheads that in them have more destructive power than all the explosives used in World War II. That's in one warhead. We have enough warhead power to blow up the earth many times over. The whole thing is obviously crazy. Now, The overall effects of nuclear explosives are quite unique. You can't really get your head around them by thinking... I can know what a a chemical explosion is like, what an ordinary bomb is like, and I'll try and imagine it bigger and bigger and bigger. There's a completely discontinuous jump in what goes on. And so the differences lie not only in the sheer scale of the destruction that you can achieve, but how fast you can achieve it. When we certainly, in World War II, laid waste cities, but it it took several nights and lots of planes, and the whole thing sort of built up slowly, and firestorms started, and so on. Nowadays, you can do that in an instant, and it's not going to be difficult... If terrorists want to do it, for terrorists to achieve this aim, if we uh, don't look out. But all explosions are essentially the same. An explosion is the rapid release of some stored energy, and we can demonstrate that nicely, giving people lots of warning. Balloon and a pin in case you have nervous disposition. Explosion the rapid release of energy. However, there is a trick you can do where if we put the pin in extremely carefully, hopefully it doesn't go bang. Now, all hold your breath. I've got to do this very gently. There we go. And we'll leave this here for the duration of the lecture. And slowly but surely, the balloon will deflate. The energy is being released in a controlled fashion. We don't get an explosion. If you want to know how to do the party trick later, to amuse your grandchildren or great-grandchildren, come and see me and I'll show you how to do it. So how do we release nuclear energy? Well, if there's one equation, one law in physics, everybody knows... It's Einstein's celebrated E equals mc squared. An extraordinary equation. What that tells a physicist is that mass, Now we all think we know what mass is, mass is a form of stored energy. So it shows you something of Einstein's genius, doesn't it? The he manages to relate something as apparently concrete as mass. You know, we go and buy potatoes, a couple of kilograms, whatever it is, something that we really feel, you know, we can get our hands on, with something as nebulous and ephemeral as the concept of energy. Energy isn't a thing. It's a very, very clever idea that uh, we have developed over many years. Now, all energy transfers, even the ones that we've just done with the balloon, all energy transfers involve changes in mass. There are changes in energy, and this equation tells us that there are changes in mass too, but usually those are so small they are virtually impossible to detect. Boiling a kettle, if you did it very carefully, so you didn't get any evaporation and lost some, literally lost some molecules up the spout, had it in a fixed container. If you could have had a very accurate measuring system, you would find the mass was slightly larger when it had got to 100 degrees and when you sorted out at tap water temperature. All energy changes involve mass changes. Now, a quick bit of revision. But it's probably a little while since we were all at school. Just to remind you of the physicist picture of the structure of a typical atom in a nucleus, because I want to talk a lot about the nucleus. So I'm going to put this in now, and we can refer to it later. Now, this is not to scale this diagram. There's the nucleus of an atom. That's a collection of two particles, protons and neutrons. Very similar in size. The main difference being a proton has a positive electrical charge, and the neutrons are electrically negative. You can sort of all, I think you, well, we immediately see why we probably need something else besides just protons. If you've got two positively charged things, you probably all remember, light charges repel. So if there's not something else in the nucleus, the neutrons providing some sort of extra glue via a thing we call the strong nuclear force, n- nuclei would just fall to pieces. So that's roughly the reason why they're there. And of course, around the outside of this is all the electrons. But well, we're not really going to be bothered about those at all tonight, but do be careful, you'll quite often see diagrams like this, and this is completely not to scale. If this was drawn to scale, then if that was the nu- typical diagram of the nucleus, the atom out these lines would have to be 10,000 times further out. So if a nucleus was the size of my midriff, which if I flatter myself, is about 25 centimetres, the electrons are 2.5 kilometres away. Atoms are mostly empty space. Anyway, it's, it's a nucleus that we're really, really bothered about. How are we doing here? It's definitely getting a bit, little bit softer. A nice controlled release of energy. So we shall be referring to the nucleus as we go along. So it's just a necessary reminder of what things are like. Now, it's a remarkable fact that there's an optimum size for a nucleus, we go from the lightest one in the periodic table, hydrogen, right up to the heaviest naturally occurring element, uranium, and we, we produce a graph which I've labelled stability of the nucleus. How stable? How difficult it is to break up? And it has this funny curved shape. And the most stable nucleus, there's no fluke, is iron, which is the by weight the most abundant element certainly on our planet. So there's an optimum size for a nucleus. And left to themselves, all things being equal, nuclei would like to change and become the one which was the most stable. Now, for heavy nuclei, if we can split them into two smaller bits, say, take some uranium, all those protons and neutrons break into two bits then those two bits will have a bit less, will end up being down here where the, the, those two elements are slightly more stable. And in doing so, there's going to be a change in mass, because surprisingly, for all nuclei, apart from, well, no, including this one down here, for all nuclei, the, whole, the mass of the whole is less than the sum of the mass of all the bits that make it up. So if you've got an element down here with lots of protons and lots of neutrons and you work out the mass of a proton and the mass of a neutron multiplied by the number you've got, add it all together you'll come up with a number. But if you measure the mass of all these together as an iron nucleus you find it's not as big as that number you've just worked out. And this energy represents the energy needed to break that nucleus up. We're swapping energy and mass It's with Einstein's formula. So let's work out roughly what that means. This is to remind you that E equals mc squared simply means E equals M times C times C again. C is this extraordinary thing, the speed of light. So if we put in one gram, that's a very small mass, into this equation, the energy value of one gram of mass converted into energy is about the equivalent of 3,000 tonnes of coal. So one gram of mass represents a huge amount of stored energy, which is why nuclear weapons are going to be so... So destructive. So for heavy nuclei, splitting them apart so that the parts are closer to the most stable, that releases energy. But also, as we've seen on that previous graph, I'll be back here. If you put light ones together, the same thing happens. That's a bit of a paradox, isn't it? The same thing happens at both ends of the periodic table. Now, if you're a physicist, that tells you there's at least two bits of physics going on here. This is not a physics lecture, but it's just a point we can make in passing. We're going to concentrate on so-called nuclear fission, taking large nuclei and arranging for them to come into two small pieces, not taking very light nuclei and putting them together. That's the process which goes on, for example, inside the sun. So how do we release nuclear energy? Well, we have to take a uranium nucleus and get it to split into two bits. And we do that by hitting it with one of these particles, the neutron. I'll tell you where they come from in a minute. Neutron hits the nucleus, it, it, it's absorbed into the nucleus, and it becomes unstable and it splits into, of course, into a dumbbell shape. Remember, all these protons are positively charged, so the minute it becomes non-asymmetric, the minute it loses its spherical, perfect spherical shape, the two bits repel, they fly off, so the, most, the release of most nuclear energy is, in fact, just the energy of motion of two particles flying apart very quickly. Now, I've got a nucleus here. One of the ways that physicists try and decide what's going on inside the nucleus is, is a thing called the liquid drop model. It behaves very much like a drop of liquid. And if you bang a drop of liquid, it wobbles around. It can spit into two drops. So if that represents the nucleus, this is all the protons and neutrons together and behaving a bit like a blob of liquid. When the neutron comes in, it pinches Into two bits, it gets unstable. You you can see the makings of the two smaller nuclei there. These are both positively charged, and it flies apart. And if you actually work out using that as a model, saying the nucleus behaves like a little drop of liquid, you can actually make a lot of headway and understand a lot of what goes on. Now, the interesting thing is that when this thing splits into two, we're left with a few spare neutrons, and they fly off. And the name of the game is to try and get one of these to do this bit to interact with another unsplit nucleus and induce a splitting process so we can get a reaction going now if we want to make an explosion we need to release the energy as fast as possible we want an uncontrolled diverging Bigger and bigger reaction. Now, when you exploit nuclear energy in a nuclear power station, you don't want the thing to blow up, obviously. You want it in a nice controlled fashion. What you would like in a nuclear power station is that for every nucleus which fissions, just one more fissions. Now, we were going to demonstrate this as matches, but we can't turn the fire alarms off, so we're going to demonstrate it with dominoes, and we can represent the system of what... This is a nucleus here. Can we all see this roughly? You've all done this at home, I'm sure you tip it over, we get a nice sort of controlled 1 goes to 1 goes to 1 goes to 1 controlled reaction. But If I set my dominoes up like this so that 1 hits 2 hits more, we get a diverging reaction. I hope I've got these spaced out now. Nice. There we go, lovely. And so you go 2, four, eight, 16, 32, 64. It very rapidly becomes an enormous number of nuclei taking part. The time delay between each of these stages is minute fractions of a second. So the whole thing is over, in terms of a bomb, in the smallest fraction of a second. Less than a millionth of a second. That is a, is a range to go. So we're out to try and make this divergent reaction as fast as possible. So what we need... Oh, this is just a schematic of our chain, of our chain reaction... Neutron comes in, and so on. This diagram, which you sort of see very similar diagrams in many articles and books, uh, doesn't really tell you. that They're talking about almost pure material, and we'll see the importance of that in a minute. Virtually all these representations of a uranium nucleus looks so as if it's a possible candidate for fission. As we shall see, most naturally occurring uranium nuclei don't do this very readily, and that causes us a, a certain technical difficulty in making a bomb. So to get this thing to explode, we've obviously got to get this diverging reaction going. So if we don't have enough material, these sort of nuclear bullets, the neutrons, they can just escape outwards and there's not enough nuclei to do what you want. So we need a certain minimum quantity, so called critical mass, to make a nice big bang, where we get a nice chain reaction and so on. So we need, we need the neutrons to be causing fissions and not escaping and doing anything else being absorbed or whatever. And the critical mass, how much you need, depends on all sorts of things. The the size, the shape, the purity, and so on. And also the density, interestingly enough. Now, natural uranium, stuff you get out of the ground, consists of two types. Chemically identical, very slightly different from a physicist's point of view. There's a so-called light version, light isotope, uranium light, has three less neutrons than the most abundant uranium. And it's this light stuff, so-called uranium-235, which is the fissile stuff, 0.7%. Less than 1% is the stuff that makes for your bang. The majority, we'll see why it's called fertile in a minute, the majority is a form of uranium which is not easily... Fissionable. So to make fission devices, we need to have uranium concentrated. We've got to find some way of sorting out the fissile type that we want from the non-fissile type that we don't. But both these particles, both these types of uranium, are chemically identical. So you can't use a chemical process to purify it. You have to find some physical process which depends... Um, the very small difference in mass between the two types of particle very small difference in mass and there are various techniques uh, for doing this we won't bother to go into the the complicated details of that tonight This, this can be done obviously right so here's our natural uranium now we're approaching part of the presentation which if you remember nothing else I want you to take away and think about carefully when you hear things on the radio and TV about possible proliferation of weapons. Natural uranium, 0.7% of the stuff that we want. If you're making a power station, typically you sort it out so that the fissile stuff is about 2.5% of the total. If you want to make military-grade explosives, you need it 90%. In the fissile ones, you've got to get rid of most of the hard-to-fission nuclei. So, if we compare these two, if you're going to get power station fuel from natural uranium, it's got to be about 3.6 times richer, if you like, more concentrated than the natural stuff. So you've got to find your, your technology for separating these things out has got to achieve a, an enhancement of a factor of 3.6. If you want to make a bomb, well, if you've already got reactor fuel, that's already 2.5% what you want, and you want to get to 90%, you've got to go up by a factor of 36. OK, so... This is beginning to look like, you know, it's not too much of a worry. There's a huge jump to go from using it in power stations to using it in bombs. Another factor of 36. So it would appear at first sight that this is sort of ten times further away than that. If you've got the technology to provide this enrichment, this is what all the song and dance about Iran is at the moment, whether they're developing this technology and how good it is. If you can get to there, it looks as if you're still a long way from getting there. So perhaps we shouldn't be too worried if countries start developing civilian nuclear power programs and want to enrich their own uranium. A factor of 10 difference. However, let's do a little bit of enrichment. I'll first of all do the the Blue Peter demonstration and I'll show you the calculation. This piece of paper is one metre in length. A thousand millimetres. So each millimetre corresponds to a kilogram. thousand kilograms. A tonne. So this represents a tonne of uranium, natural uranium. And that little bit I've coloured at the top, that's the stuff that we want. Okay? So for a power station, I want that bit there to be equivalent to two point two and a half percent of the total. Now, as you shall see, it's not difficult to work out, but I'll do it for us. What we have to do is remove that much. And then this bit here, you see the black bit. This is now 2.5% of that bit there. And that would represent power station enriched uranium. But I hope you can see, I've already removed the majority of it so if I actually wanted to make a bomb with 100% pure fissile uranium I've just got to remove that bit well actually I want 90% so it's just a wee bit less not quite as bad as that so I've got to do something like like that then that represents what I can put in the bomb that's mostly the black bit and not much white so I've got to remove that extra bit Now you can see the point I'm making. You've already removed that to get to nuclear fuel for a power station. That's only the extra bit you've got to do to get a bomb. The law of diminishing returns doesn't set in. As I say, this is a a pretty straightforward calculation to do with percentages. So we start off by thinking that to get bombs is ten times more complicated than getting... Power station fuel. Well that's how I worked out how much to cut off the off the bit of paper. Start off with a thousand kilograms of uranium, only seven kilograms of it, and I've got a proper little point here, and only seven kilograms of it is what we want. So I can fiddle about reducing that quantity there. So what's what total do I need? If 7 kilograms, what I want is to be 2.5%, so there's a little equation which works that out. 7 over T has got to be 2.5%. So the total has got to be 280 kilograms. Well, I don't want to get rid of the 7 kilograms, so I've actually got to reduce the uranium that I don't need to 273 kilograms, so I started off with 993. 1,000 in total, 7 was what I wanted, 993 was what I didn't want, so I've got to remove 273. And the 993, that's where I get the 720 from. I'm about three, almost three quarters of the way there. Now, that's just a, a trivial percentage calculation. I don't need any complicated nuclear physics to work that out. And It shows you just quite how close you are to getting bomb-grade material once you're running a civilian nuclear power system. So countries that develop civilian nuclear power really are very close to getting the material they need uh, to make weapons and this concentrating uranium, the technical term is called uranium enrichment, it sounds like you're adding something when you say enrichment really you're taking something away, it's more like purification or concentration so the word enrichment I don't think is uh, uh, particularly good so how much material do we need to have a critical mass well if we use uranium and we, we do, we do a bit of something a little bit clever. We have our critical mass of uranium. And we put around the outside of it some materials which actually, if a neutron does escape, it reflects it back in. It's acts a bit like a mirror. So we can get away with a, uh, with a relatively small mass of uranium. If it's, pure, if it's purely explosive uranium, you only want 15 kilograms to make a bang. If it's less pure, of course we need more of it, to get the relevant amount of the bit that's going to go bang. And you can make an explosion with only 40% pure fissile uranium. Now, familiar object, a golf ball. If that golf ball was uranium, uranium is pretty dense stuff. It's about 19 grams per cc. Now, some of you may remember well, lead being pretty dense material. Lead is about 11.4 grams per cc, so it's considerably more dense than lead. So that golf ball, if it was uranium, would be about 5 kilograms. I wouldn't be holding it up easily like that. So to make a bomb, you're talking about three golf balls worth. You don't need very much in terms of quantity. Quite easy to conceal that and walk about with it. We don't need very much. Now, a little bit, little bit more nuclear physics. Top of this slide is what happened with our uranium. If we had a, a type that would split, we'd get our chain reaction. Now, most of uranium, remember, was this heavier type, which was very difficult to fission. But what it does do, rather than splitting when it absorbs a nucleus, when it absorbs a neutron, it actually converts... From being uranium through a complicated series of processes to become a completely different chemical element, alchemy. It goes from uranium and becomes plutonium. I'm sure you've all heard of plutonium. Plutonium is a very nice explosive fissile material. In fact, it's more easy to fission things with plutonium to some extent than it is with uranium. But the key point of this slide is that if you're running a power station, you've got 2.5% typically enrichment. Most of the uranium in the fuel is this sort, not that sort. So, an inevitable, you can't avoid producing plutonium if you run an ordinary power station. And what the reprocessing plants do is to extract the plutonium, because that can be used theoretically in power stations. It's also the stuff that the military want to make their nice explosive weapons. It's an inevitable result of running a nuclear power station system that you produce an alternative form of fissile material that's chemically different from uranium. And so this can be separated and purified by chemical means, which is much easier in principle. It's quite a dangerous thing to do. Chemical engineers have set up plants to do it. But compared to the problem of sorting out different sorts of uranium atoms, that's a relatively simple process. And all civilian power stations cannot avoid producing plutonium. So we refer to this uranium not as fissile, but as fertile. We can breed new fissile fuel from it. The plutonium. And with the same trick about wrapping your plutonium in these things which bounce the neutrons back to help the chain reaction keep going, pure fissile plutonium, which is actually quite easy to get chemically, you want even less, 4.4 kilograms. That's about less than one golf ball. must that'll be the explosive charge in a plutonium-type bomb. Ah. So, what we need to do to make a bomb is to assemble a critical mass as fast as possible and find some way of setting it off. So there are some naturally occurring materials, we can manufacture materials as well, that naturally emit neutrons. That's the thing you need, that's the, sort of the trigger. Like me, i struck a match to light the, the match demonstration. So you have to put together, what you're trying to do to, when you design them, we put together a critical mass in the presence of something which which sprays neutrons, and off it goes. And you get a bang. And there's two ways of doing that. If you're using uranium, you take three subcritical masses. You don't want to walk around with a critical mass, obviously, so you have to make sure you haven't got too much together in the same place. That's one of the complications about running a reprocessing plant. You mustn't have a, a blockage in the pipe which allows a critical mass to assemble anywhere. And all you do is to put two detonators on the end... Explode them at the same time, bang it all together, and bang, off it goes. That's the uranium type. Plutonium is quite interesting. If you do the, try to do the same trick with plutonium, you can, in fact, walk around with a lump of plutonium which would correspond to a critical mass, because for it to go bang, it's got to be compressed. Remember, I told you that critical mass, one of the things which depends on, it depends on, is the density. So it's got to be compressed. So what you do is you get your sphere of plutonium and you design these explosive charges around the outside, set them all off together, and shock waves go into the plutonium, compresses it, and bang, off it goes. The ultimate yield you get from one of these devices simply depends on how big a critical mass you can get together before it blows itself apart. poetic interlude also in the form of tests can you spot what's wrong with this rather nice poem which was written to accompany an exhibition which went round the country talking about nuclear power shortly after the war in 1947 this is the tale of Frederick Worms whose parents weren't on speaking terms when Frederick wrote to Santa Claus he wrote in duplicate because one went to dad and one to mum. He asked each for some plutonium. So Frederick's father and his mother, without consulting one another, both bought a lump of large size, intending it for a surprise. These met in Frederick's stocking and laid waste some ten square miles of land. Please learn from this tale of nuclear fission and don't mix science and superstition. What was the mistake in that little poem that was authored by somebody? It wasn't compressed. Sorry? It wasn't compressed. That's right. It, would have to, it really should have been uranium for it to make physics sense, but anyway, I haven't changed it. It's a nice little, nice little poem. Now, you've all been looking at a, a nuclear bomb since you came in probably without realising it. They're not very big. We only wanted a small amount of uh, fissile material, and I have here in front of you all A full scale mock up of a gun sized nuclear bomb. So you'd have a bit of uranium in the middle, at each end, two detonators, you can steal those many mine, they lie around, they use them, two rails to send it along, bang, electronic timer, off it goes. If anybody wants the drawings for this later, I'd like to know why you want them, but they're not difficult to find. And when I asked a local engineering company, I sent them the drawings, not telling them what it was, for an estimate of how much it would cost me to have it made up to a reasonable tolerance. This was a few years ago, I admit, but uh, the quote came back, it was going to cost me about £500. Then I had another letter a few days later. Dear Sir, with regard to our estimate, we forgot to add on the VAT. If I wrote back, dear sir, I'm not quite sure what the concept of value-added tax is when talking about making a nuclear bomb. However, so they're not very big. You know, under your raincoat, most cities have nice tall buildings. Walk in, pop it there. Mobile phone technology, I mean, you know, really... I'm making light of it, but it's a bit of a worry, really, isn't it? Now, nothing I'm telling you tonight is a secret. And I could have brought all sorts of sources along to show you, but I'll just show you two. Um, How to build a nuclear bomb. My Granta books, Frank Barnaby. It's all there. But if you're a bit more technically minded, why don't you go for the Los Alamos Primer? Now, Los Alamos is where... They built the bombs in the war. And this is a copy of in fact an annotated copy of the lecture notes that the physicists used to go to when they arrived at Los Alamos to get them up to speed with what they needed to know. A great source of questions for A level physics exams. It's all there. So it's it's widely available information. I meant to put that up to say, have you seen that? It's about... and then you've perhaps pointed it out. I forgot to put that slide in at the right point. The effects of a nuclear explosion. Well, we're approaching the 65th anniversary of the so-called Trinity test, which was the 16th of July, 1945, which is a plutonium weapon, a compression weapon, with a yield of about 21 kilotons of TNT equivalent. And I want to read you an eyewitness statement was observing this test, lying on the ground 10 miles from ground zero. So that's roughly where this circle there is Bath, so you perhaps can pick out where you live. If you're 10 miles away, this is what it looked like. Suddenly, the whole landscape was inundated by an extremely bright light that looked like and was much brighter than sunlight at noon. In fact a very small fraction of a second that light at our distance of the explosion could cause the worst sunburn than exposure for a whole day on a sunny beach. The guy writing this was a very good nuclear physicist. At the moment of the explosion the thought passed through my mind that maybe the atmosphere was catching fire although I knew the possibility had been carefully considered and ruled out. There was a definite worry at the beginning that you know, things might get slightly out of hand. What happens when you explode a weapon depends on how you explode it. Whether you use a ground burst, you have the thing on the ground, or you explode it above the ground, that so-called air burst. If you do a ground burst, then the fireball, that huge conflagration which you get from the explosion, creates a large crater... and throws up, it sets up an enormous convection current the superheating of the ground, the hot air all sort goes up and that's where you get the mushroom cloud from and it sucks up with it a huge amount of the soil and earth that made the crater and that all becomes contaminated so you get an awful lot of radioactive fallout from a ground burst if you use an air burst 500 metres up then of course the blast can spread out over a larger area that's why having tall buildings in cities is quite handy these days if you want to do this sort of thing, rather than being on the ground. But you would get less material sucked up, so there's less, less fallout. Now, the energy release, this very small change in mass, Hiroshima corresponded to a mass change of about a gramme. If you could have got all the bits together afterwards and weighed them and compared them with the beginning, you'd have lost a gram of mass gone into energy. And that energy comes out in various ways. Half of it is blast. I mean, just a compression wave in the air. About a third of it is radiated away as infrared radiation. Heat. And notice... of what we're getting is not, you know, the word nuclear is not appearing. It's just mechanical effects, mechanical and thermal effects. The nuclear bit is effectively very small. This is a very famous sequence of photographs from a test site, which shows you what's happening. And, of course, heat travels faster than sound, the blast. So you're standing there, and all of a sudden, things spontaneously catch fire from the level of heat radiation. Then a bit later, the blast follows it. The thing's already caught fire and gets nicely fanned by the blast. And the blast rushes past and leaves a partial vacuum, so then it all rushes back again. So you get a a double whammy. You get hit both ways. So if the thing hasn't toppled over that way, it'll catch it on the way back. And that's why the effects are so um, all-consuming. Very early high-speed. Photography. The actual amount of nuclear radiation from the bits that fall apart are radioactive and so they produce nuclear radiation some of the neutrons and so on and the, the fallout that contaminates stuff and comes back down again so the nuclear bit, if you like is about 15% of the total and it's this which causes the, tends to cause the long lived effect. Because if you don't get knocked out straight away, then if you get badly irradiated, then that's not going to do you much good either. So the only two times, as we all know, where weapons were used in anger was at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Hiroshima was a uranium bomb, they were both air bursts. And this weapon was never tested before it was used. The physicists were so confident that that gun type, just banging those two subcritical masses together, was bound to work. So again, if you're worried about people doing this in a clandestine way, you, know, you don't have to sort of see are they testing these things? You're pretty certain to be able to make a device which is probably going to work with some degree of efficiency. Whereas the plutonium bomb at Nagasaki with that compression, that's a bit more complicated to do, so that was the one they tested they're both air bursts and that was called little boy because it's a long thin thing and the plutonium one was rather round so they called it fat man and these are relatively small by modern weapon standards small explosions but nevertheless the total immediate deaths are about 190,000 one small weapon devastates a city. One little known fact about uh, Nagasaki is it was not the prime target for the attack. The prime target for the attack was a place called Karurak on the coast. It was a naval base. But the cloud cover was too low, so they got diverted to their (coughs) secondary target, which in terms of World War II was really bizarre because the biggest Christian community in Japan lived in Nagasaki. There is one gentleman you may have read recently who survived both bombs extraordinary story, he was in Hiroshima the day the bomb went off survived, managed to get back to Nagasaki ...and was there for the the bomb on Nagasaki. But having said that, he died recently at the age of 91. One or two concluding remarks. The black market trade in illicit nuclear materials is increasing on average, about one incident a year is reported to the Atomic Energy Authorities in Vienna, the International Atomic Energy Agency. Since about 1993, one a year is being caught and reported. How many are not being recorded because they've not been caught? And we're talking about quite small quantities, say 100 grams of fissile of enriched uranium. But there's a there's a black market trade in this material. For the record, 30 countries at the moment have nuclear power programs, civilian nuclear power programs, so it's a very widespread uh, technology. And of course it's featuring as one aspect of the climate debate, because people claim, they assert that nuclear power is carbon free. Well, Perhaps we'll meet on another day and debate that. But it's, it's by no means carbon-free. In any way, it ignores the basic problem. This is isn't to talk about climate change. In fact, there's one going along there in about a few minutes if you want to go along. The fundamental problem is not the carbon. The fundamental problem is the energy that gets dumped into the environment. The carbon just makes it a bit worse. So nuclear power, for my money, is not a way out of the climate change problem. In fact, large nuclear power stations don't really satisfy the energy needs of many of the countries that we would like to see more stable supplies with. But we already have them. And we do have stockpiles of uranium, enriched uranium and plutonium in the weapons programme. What are we going to do with it? Well, maybe, despite everything I've been saying the best thing we can do with it is to make it into nuclear fuel and put it into power stations and get rid of it. Thank you very much.